Hello, dissidents. We're popping in to share the story of the very first political scandal at the Supreme Court. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. This week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. John Rutledge was not an easygoing man. Born in 1739 to an Irish immigrant doctor and a blue-blood South Carolinian mother, Rutledge was strong-willed and proud. He started studying law at 17 years old and soon earned his place among Charleston's elite as a wealthy, prominent attorney. He served as governor of South Carolina during the Revolutionary War and earned the nickname Dictator John for seizing unprecedented emergency powers during the war. Rutledge's hard-headedness was sometimes an asset. In 1776, with the British Army bearing down on Charleston, Continental Army General Charles Lee ordered the troops stationed at Fort Sullivan in Charleston Harbor to evacuate. The fort was only half-built, and Lee assumed the British would easily overtake it. But in a fiery note to Fort Sullivan's commander, Rutledge told the troops to stay put. General Lee wishes for you to evacuate the fort, he wrote. You will not do it without an order from me. I would rather cut off my hand than write one. The troops managed to successfully defeat the British in a victory that is still celebrated every year in South Carolina as Carolina Day. Despite, or perhaps because of, Rutledge's willfulness, he was among a select group of men trusted to help draft the U.S. Constitution. He was an accomplished attorney, a proven leader, and a man that both George Washington and John Adams considered a friend. But in 1795, Rutledge earned a new ignoble distinction. He became the first Supreme Court nominee to be rejected by the Senate. The strange story of John Rutledge's failed confirmation centers on an enduring norm that has been baked into the Supreme Court from the very beginning. Justices, despite going through a painfully political confirmation process, should not be political animals themselves. While the court has never been untouched by politics, and justices clearly have personal views, the men and women who've served on the court have largely followed the unwritten rule of refraining from divisive political rhetoric and avoiding behavior that would undermine the public perception that the court is an independent, impartial, and nonpartisan branch of government. John Rutledge is an example of what happens when you don't do that. John Rutledge was a natural pick for the court in 1795. After all, he'd already briefly served on it. The early Supreme Court was very much a work in progress. The Constitution, for all its ingenuity in designing the architecture of the national government, is surprisingly light on details when it comes to the judicial branch. Article 3 states that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, that judges shall hold their offices during good behavior, meaning they don't have term limits and may only be removed through the impeachment process, and that a justice's compensation may not be diminished while in office. The Constitutional Convention had debated whether the legislative or executive branch should be responsible for appointing justices. The founders settled on the executive, writing in Article 2, Section 2, that the president shall nominate and, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. 
The Constitution further specifies in Article 3, Section 2, that disputes between states, as well as those involving ambassadors and other public ministers, must be filed directly with the Supreme Court. Otherwise, the justices hear appeals of cases arising under the Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made. And that's about it. There's nothing in the Constitution about how many Supreme Court justices there should be, how often they should meet, or how exactly the court should interact with inferior courts. The Constitution left it to Congress to fill in those details. That's not to suggest the judiciary was an afterthought for the founders. The Declaration of Independence lambasted King George for making judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. An independent judiciary free from powerful influence was essential to the founders' idea of America. So much so that in 1776, John Adams told a friend, between you and me, there is one point I cannot give up. You must establish your judge's salaries, as well as commissions. Otherwise, justice will be a proteus. Your liberty, lives, and fortunes will be the sport of winds. Adams later declared in his draft of the Massachusetts State Constitution that it is the right of every citizen to be tried by judges as free, impartial, and independent as the law of humanity will admit. The Judiciary Act of 1789 established a six-justice Supreme Court. President George Washington nominated John Jay, his Secretary of Foreign Affairs, as Chief Justice, noting that the position must be regarded as the keystone of our political fabric. He also nominated five associate justices, John Rutledge among them. The Senate approved all six by voice vote two days later. But life as a Supreme Court justice was decidedly unglamorous in 1789. The court had no building of its own. The justices met first in the Royal Exchange in New York, then moved to the hall in Philadelphia where the nation's capital relocated. And the justices were expected to ride circuit twice a year. They had to travel by horseback through their assigned circuit region, which could be remote and rural, to hear cases. John Rutledge lasted only 18 months as an associate justice. He frequently skipped the court's meetings and resented being responsible for the Southern Circuit, which required especially arduous travel. The Southern Circuit was so difficult to traverse that Rutledge's successor, Thomas Johnson, lasted only five months on the court. Rutledge abruptly left the Supreme Court in 1791 for a higher-paying job as Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court. There, he might have been content to remain indefinitely, but in 1795, Rutledge's pride and ambition led him to pen a letter to President Washington asking to be reappointed to the Supreme Court, this time as Chief Justice. He didn't know it, but that letter marked the beginning of the end of his career. I have held many posts of high rank and great importance, John Rutledge boasted in a letter to George Washington, and have been under the necessity of refusing others. But they were offered spontaneously and handsomely. He had never solicited a job, he assured Washington, nor do I mean this letter as an application. It is intended merely to apprise you of what I would do if selected. Chief Justice John Jay had just resigned from the court to serve as governor of New York after a particularly tumultuous period. Jay, despite being Chief Justice, had been tasked by President Washington and Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton with traveling to Britain as special envoy to negotiate a second treaty, which would become known, and derided, as the Jay Treaty. The British had failed to abandon all the American forts they'd agreed to exit in the 1783 Treaty of Paris. 
Moreover, British experts were flooding the American market, and Royal Navy ships had pressed American sailors into service and confiscated military supplies bound for France. James Madison and others were pushing for a trade war with Britain. But Washington and Hamilton wanted to de-escalate tensions between the two nations. Jay, under their guidance, negotiated a treaty that successfully closed British forts, but let the British largely off the hook for other misdeeds. Many Americans were furious. When Jay came back home, he said in jest that he could find his way home from Boston to Philadelphia at night by the light of his burning effigies. When Jay stepped down as Chief Justice in the summer of 1795, Rutledge seized the opportunity. In a letter to President Washington, he rather boldly suggested that he, not Jay, should have been made Chief Justice in the first place. Many of my friends were displeased at my accepting the office of associate judge, he informed Washington, conceiving, as I thought very justly, that my pretensions to the office of Chief Justice were at least equal to Mr. Jay's in point of law knowledge, with the additional weight of much longer experience and much greater practice. Washington wasn't put off by Rutledge's assertiveness. In fact, Washington told Rutledge that he was now Chief Justice of the United States, effective immediately. The Senate was not in session, so Washington was able to make a recess appointment, with Senate approval to come later. Rutledge had succeeded, and now he was head of the highest court in the nation. But a few weeks later, despite the honor and judicial responsibility Washington had just bestowed upon him, Rutledge did something foolish. On July 16th, Rutledge attended a demonstration against the Jay Treaty at St. Michael's Church in Charleston, where he gave a scathing speech. According to witnesses, Rutledge denounced the treaty and said that he had rather the president should die dearly as he loved him than he should sign that puerile instrument, and that he preferred war to the adoption of it. By the time Rutledge arrived in Philadelphia weeks later to take a seat on the Supreme Court for the August session, news of Rutledge's ill-advised speech had spread across the country. The most prominent orator on that occasion was Judge Rutledge, one newspaper reported, who uttered the most gross invectives both against the President Washington as well as Mr. Jay for having sacrificed the interests of the American states to the King of Great Britain. Another paper described Rutledge's speech as consisting of the silliest expressions that ever fell from human lips. Federalists, who largely supported the Jay Treaty, were furious. Rutledge had publicly and viciously come out against a policy decision of the president only weeks after accepting that president's nomination, and he had inserted himself into a heated political debate in a way that even John Jay, for whom the treaty was named, had carefully avoided. Alexander Hamilton published an editorial calling Rutledge's speech a delirium of rage that brought mortification to the Federalist Party, asking, "'What are we to think of the state of mind which could produce so extravagant a sally?' Senator Oliver Ellsworth, co-author of the Judiciary Act, said Rutledge had acted like a devil. William Davey, a North Carolina politician, publicly wondered whether Rutledge raves on the bench as he does at a town meeting. With one speech, John Rutledge stirred up a political firestorm that was turning a whole party, technically his own party, against him. He had lost his Olympian position of a proud, preeminently honored and respected first citizen, as the South Carolina Historical Society puts it. He was now a highly controversial figure. This all went down in August, and the Senate wasn't scheduled to vote on his appointment until December. So for four months, Rutledge served as chief justice and waited to see if the axe would fall. 
President Washington could have withdrawn his support for Rutledge, but despite the insults Rutledge had hurled in his speech at St. Michael's Church, Washington formally submitted his appointment to the Senate on December 10th, 1795, as promised. Five days later, after an energetic debate, the vote to confirm Rutledge failed 10 to 14. Eight of the Senate's 32 members did not participate in the vote, perhaps unwilling to go on record one way or another. Of the 14 who voted against Rutledge, 13 were Federalists, and all 14 had voted in favor of the Jade Treaty. By speaking out so recklessly on a divisive political issue, Rutledge had turned his confirmation vote into a referendum on the Jay Treaty. He had also repulsed many Americans, including perhaps the eight senators who didn't show up for the vote, who believed a justice of the Supreme Court should be more reserved on matters of politics. John Adams wrote in a letter to his wife that the Senate's rejection of Rutledge gave me pain for an old friend, though I could not but think he deserved it. Chief justices must not go to illegal meetings and become popular orators in favor of sedition, nor inflame the popular discontents which are ill-founded, nor propagate disunion, division, contention, and delusion among the people. John Rutledge reacted to the Senate's rejection in about the worst way a man can. Two days after Christmas, he tried to commit suicide by jumping off a Charleston wharf. After rescuers pulled him out of the water, Rutledge reportedly told them that he had long been a judge and he knew no law that forbid a man to take away his own life. America's founders understood that the judicial branch, entrusted with the power to decide disputes implicating Americans' rights, must not be steeped in the same partisan division and heated political rhetoric that already plagued the other two branches of government less than a decade into their existence. Supreme Court justices needed to be above the fray, to quote John Adams, as free, impartial, and independent as the lot of humanity will admit. The promise of America as a just nation would depend upon it. While Supreme Court justices have occasionally expressed their policy or political views over the years, on balance, they've been more careful in tone and substance than John Rutledge was in 1795. Most justices have adhered closely to the ethical norms of the court and refrained from speaking publicly in ways that can be seen as overtly partisan rather than coming from a perspective of constitutional interpretation. And when justices do step out of bounds, they face public reprimand. Justice Samuel Chase, an outspoken Federalist known as Old Bacon Face, who publicly supported John Adams' re-election campaign in 1800, was impeached for, quote, prostituting the high judicial character with which he was invested to the low purpose of an electioneering partisan. The Senate ultimately acquitted Chase in 1805. More than two centuries later, another presidential election prompted a justice to share her thoughts. In 2016, after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave a series of interviews criticizing then-candidate Donald Trump, the New York Times editorial board said it was baffling that Ginsburg would call her own commitment to impartiality into question. Washington is more than partisan enough without the spectacle of a Supreme Court justice flinging herself into the mosh pit. Shortly thereafter, Ginsburg released a statement saying she regretted her remarks. Judges should avoid commenting on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect, she said. Instead, the justices should save their fire for their dissents. Special thanks to our colleague Nicole Yateman for her help on this episode. And thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out Dis. I'm I'm the Wikipedia of pop culture from the 90s and 2000s and Supreme Court. <laughs> Grant is like Wikipedia on your own time, ladies. I want to know more about this old bacon face. Like what does that even mean? He would get he would get bright red and they I don't know, they called him old bacon face. <laughs>